Hello and welcome to the Hustle and Bustle podcast. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, the Yugambeh people, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. My name's Nicole Bennett, and I'm an urban and regional planner and I'm the host of this podcast. Each episode I bring you conversations with city shapers and urban thinkers, leaders in the field of urban planning and city building. I'm located here on the beautiful Gold Coast in Australia. We're one of the host cities for the Brisbane 2032 Olympics and Paralympics. The next 10 years is being described as the golden decade for our city and our region. The conversations on this podcast help us understand the opportunities and challenges ahead. So let's take a minute from our busy hustle and bustle day and let's have a great conversation. And welcome to episode 11 for 2022. You might notice my voice is sounding a little hoarse. I have had the most amazing few days in Tasmania for the Planning Institute of Australia National Congress. Now, this Congress was held in Hobart, which is just an absolutely stunning city. And it brought together around 500 town planners from across Australia and a few international guests as well. And it was the first time in three years that the planning fraternity within Australia had been together all in one location, all learning and celebrating together. So for something that was once an annual event, COVID really uh, made it impossible to run the last three years. And so this was the first time we'd all got together and man, it was electric. The, oh, the, the presentations were outstanding. You could tell that there was a, so much knowledge to be shared amongst everyone. And then the social events were fantastic, just catching up with everyone. Uh, we had a huge contingent from Arab there. There was 12 of us from across Australia. So it was lovely to, to see everyone, to meet some new people. And uh, and yeah, just, just I, I'm still recovering, uh, hence the voice. I think uh, way too much talking uh, to too many people. And so my, my, uh, my poor voice and I'm, I'm feeling rather t- tired, but at the same time, extremely energized by what I learned. So what I wanted to do today, I was planning of, of actually trying to get some uh, podcast episodes recorded when I was in Hobart, but I don't know what I was thinking because it was just such a jam-packed uh, schedule of events that I've met so many amazing people who I definitely want to get on the podcast in the future. But what I wanted to do in this episode was bring you a solo episode. I mean, it's this is episode 11 of uh, this season and I haven't done a solo episode yet. So I thought, why not tell you what the top 10 lessons I learned from the Peer National Congress? And I tried to do these over coffee uh, the morning after. I, I sort of sat down and and jotted down what I thought were the my main takeaways. And I tried to get it to five, but it ended up being 10. And I reckon I could have done 20. But I wanted to sort of keep it to 10 to, to really try and make me uh, succinctly understand what I learned and to what I'm bringing back to my work and to my colleagues and, and what I hope to share with, with you all on the podcast. So I, I, these are not in any particular order. Well, I suppose I haven't sort of gone through and reordered them. These were the order that felt right to me. So this is how it came to me. Um, and, and maybe there's something in there. Maybe there's not in terms of the ordering. But uh, yeah, let, let's let start. I'll, I'll whip through the 10 
and and you know I'd really love to hear whether these resonate with you or whether you've got diff completely different takeaways if you were if you were in Hobart for the conference if you weren't there you know is this are these 10 lessons what you think the planning industry should be focusing on what do we miss that sort of thing so I'm hoping these sort of are the start of some conversation within the industry and help continue the conversations that were started at the planning congress all right so the first one for me was inequity and and inequality that was i felt that in a number of the sessions that you know inequity and inequality within australia is far greater than it is being portrayed and that and far greater than what we understand there are people and communities living in australia right now without access to electricity telecommunications hot water fresh food these are basic human living conditions which you would expect to see and and have access to in an affluent country like australia yet you know there are many communities and people that might have a very tenuous supply of these things but if there's any outages or any maintenance required there's no backup supply and so you know there's the cleanliness and just the ability to get basic nutrition uh, and, and just have your basic needs met of shelter, of, of you know, having a full tummy, of being able to have a shower at night. You know, we, we need to do better at addressing this. How can we have communities and people out there that, that don't have this within our, within our own country? I, it just, um, it, it, it was stunning. You know, I just, I, I still am, am sort of lost for words around it. And that's why for me, it was the, the number one lesson. And, you know, I think we need to find resources and, you know, some innovative solutions for how we build much needed infrastructure in our regional areas. It's it's obvious that it's not good enough. It's obvious that we spend far, far much more effort in our our, our urban areas and, and, you know, really looking at the infrastructure there. But I, I just think, you know, we need to turn to our regional areas. These places have been experiencing significant population growth through COVID. People are leaving the city to move to these places. And, you know, we can't expect people to to leave their their homes that don't have these facilities. You know, I think there was a, a question or a comment raised, you know, why don't these people sort of move to places that, that have these facilities? And, you know, I think a number of these communities are Indigenous and traditional own, uh, traditional custodians. And so, therefore, there's that extreme attachment and, and strong attachment to, to country. But also that their support networks are there. That's where their families are. That's where they potentially are raising children. You know, that's where they, you know, they have friends. And so we just we just can't expect them to upheave their whole lives. I think we need to be much more savvy and much more onto it in terms of how we how we take the basic living conditions to them. So number one, inequality, it's in Australia and we need to focus on it. So number two is the housing crisis. There was a fantastic panel session which was chaired by the Peer National uh, Policy uh, Manager, John, and he he sort of led this discussion with economists and, and planners and, and also a, a a university professor around the housing crisis and what's leading to it. And it really opened my eyes up to why we're not seeing action uh, from any level of government in a meaningful way. And that's because 
it's been demonstrated that this housing crisis is just perpetuated and deepened because of self-interested homeowners. So 70% of the population that is decreasing, but 70% of the population owns owns a home or has a mortgage over a home. And the political votes associated with that just mean that policies to reduce the cost of housing are not popular. So really what that means is that parents and grandparents are putting their own interests ahead of their own their kids' interests uh, because you know, they don't want to see their family home go down in value. And so politicians are responding to that and they're setting policies and they're setting uh, agendas so that home prices continue to rise. And and I would say, and what I heard uh, others say is that that's unsustainable, but that that's been occurring since around the 60s. And so I think in terms of what the solution is, what I heard was that these interest rates, and as they start to rise, that has the potential of finally reducing the cost of housing. We might see that come down by sort of 10 to 15% as interest rates rise. Uh, and, you know, really politicians of all persuasions are not currently motivated to reduce the cost of housing. It's just a, a completely unpopular, uh, you know, policy position. So that was really interesting and and something that I really hadn't given a huge amount of thought to because we hear coming out of politicians mouths frequently that they want to you know this housing unaffordability the housing crisis we we saw the Jason Falinski inquiry that you know he he sort of blamed planners and and didn't get to the real heart of the issue but this panel really sort of laid out how housing had got to the position it is today and really that's because of um you know of of the self interests of homeowners and and the fact that you know the they want to continue their housing prices to just rise anyway that was number 2 so number 3 for me was around community preparedness for growth and for change and so studio THI uh, or studio the old hornery institute ran a really great workshop which stepped us through the difficulties that communities are having in terms of understanding change and understanding basic planning words and themes and and visions and those sorts of things. And so they've done some research and they're suggesting that we need to improve the community's understanding of urban change before we start engaging with them about their ideas for the future, before we start asking them about what they want to see, because we need to get them into that strategic mindset. We need to, currently they're kind of in a, a day by day, you know, what's that development happening here? And, 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 you know, we as planners think strategically, but how do we sort of uh, flip that mindset and really start to prepare them for, for urban change? And so there's a there's a whole program that and that this studio THI have devised around improving the community's pre- pre- preparedness before you launch into sort of community engagement about a, a growth strategy, for example. And the second bit I heard there was around transition leadership and how that transition leadership is the skills needed by governments and by key stakeholders to support communities who are going through urban change. Currently, there's really not a focus on developing these soft skills, which is why potentially implementation of growth plans and planning schemes, you know, are really hard and we're getting that resistance because 
you know, this is a huge transition for the community. And so that transition leadership is really important in order to support those communities moving forward. So that was number three. All right, number four, and I'm I'm probably too biased with this one because I, I gave a, uh, a joint presentation with my good friend Jaime from Arab about the power of data and how we can harness the data to make more human-centered decisions and understand the complexities of the systems that our cities comprise. But I, I still think I heard a lot from others around this topic and the, the I think Thursday was a Plantech day and Plantech is all of the technology that surrounds planning and how we need to transition to actually using this technology in such a better way. And so the key takeaways for me from what I heard through these sessions was the need for the right tools uh, to harness all of the data that is available right now and how we need institutional setup to really start to bring this all together Uh, because from the work that we've done we've found that it's really not the technology or the data that's the problem it's the lack of trust that we have in this new way of doing things as an industry and it's this wavering interest so we sort of get interested and then we don't and we sort of ebb and flow out of you know data and 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 technology and we sort of maybe have a a not so great experience with one thing and then we sort of you know we'll take the foot off the gas and I think you know if you look at the cloud system you look at the the internet of things like these are multi-billion dollar investments that are being made worldwide we need as an industry as a planning industry to start to harness this stuff and, and do our job so much better and so much differently in order to meet these growing challenges of, you know, the climate crisis, you know, the housing crisis, you know, health and well-being difficulties and, and how we really adapt to, to bringing our natural systems into our cities and places in a, in a much more sensitive way. And, and, you know, I think that it's time to change how we do things. And, we really do need some, um, you know, improved protocols around data sharing, data gathering, around building universal and consistent tools so that we can start ad- adapting to our new business as usual because, you know, we need to start thinking about what the future of planning looks like with the new digital tools that are available. So, yeah, it's number four for me is really looking at harnessing the power of data. Number five is linked to that in my mind, and some people might not agree with this in, in terms of the linkage. And, and I think there's a there's a perception that maybe this topic isn't, you know, it goes against uh, using data, but I, I very much think they're intertwined and we need to ensure they're intertwined. So number five is human-centered planning. So there was a quote that I heard. I can't recall who said it, but the quote was, Facts don't care about feelings. And and I, I it really resonated with me because it was really about understanding the why behind the what and how that's far more powerful than just having the raw information. It's really trying to get in behind the scenes and, and understand why something's happening the way that it is. The national president in his opening address says walk in someone else's shoes and I think that is really interesting because if you can walk in someone else's shoes it's that's really powerful to understand why they're doing something understand their behavior 
and and why are they responding to place or to change in a certain way so connecting with people and with country in a deep way significantly improves the impact of planning that was you know this this notion of human centered planning and leaning into the emotion leaning into the feeling so that it's not just a, a black and white regimented facts and figures type response. You know, it was really powerful. Um, and, and to me, that's number five in my takeaways. Number six goes, it has a relationship with number five. And and this one is just a, a grouping of all the sort of First Nations discussions that we had. But there's some key thoughts and, and key messages that I heard that I haven't heard before and that I really wanted to capture in in one of these lessons. So when we had the welcome to country, you know, the the elder who spoke really was moving because he spoke about that we currently have very different histories, Uh, you know, us as European settlers and and since colonisation, you know, we have our own history. And then the Indigenous people and the First Nations people have their their much longer history and we we don't have a shared history you know when you're taught history at school you might cover indigenous as a a single sort of class but it but they're not a single history and you know what the the message there was that we can't move forward together we can't start reconciliation together until our shared history is acknowledged by everyone and that we all share a single history I think that was so such a powerful message. The other one I heard in in the many discussions and and many sort of uh, sessions that covered traditional custodians and and was around designing with country comes from walking and experiencing that country. So, you know, there was a, a comment or a, a quote there that was you know a, a project team can walk on the country and have a totally different experience than what they've reviewed on paper, than what they thought that it might feel like or look like or how what it might, um, you know, be appropriate for, for example. So, you know, really, you know, going back to basics, go out and sight, but do it in a way where you're, you know, you're being walked around by people that know that place well because they will point out the things that you will never see. So walk the country and engage with the people so that you deeply understand the place that you're planning and it's not about just acquiring or reciting this knowledge it's much more about acquiring that deep knowing and that deep understanding so that you can you know appropriately you know respond to its needs so there was a there was such a an energy I'm hoping you're picking up there that it's much much more about the energy and the way that it makes you feel and and sort of you know really deeply going behind just the the kind of surface level knowledge. So that's number six. It, that's a big one. <laughs> uh, all right, number seven. So we've got three or oh, four left. Number seven is. Young people are 100% of the future. So we had an inspiring presentation one of the days from Toby Thorpe, who's the Tasmanian Young Person of the Year. And he said that, you know, young people are 100% of the future. Young people have only ever known a climate crisis 
and they're ready to tackle it and they see it as an opportunity. They see the opportunities that the climate crisis brings. It's not a doom and gloom for them. It's about what can we do to to step up and rise up to the challenge. And, you know, the other bit that I heard through that conversation was that whilst young people are only a small portion of the voting population now, the decisions that we make today affect young people far more than they affect the average voting person. So, you know, young people have to be able to find and maintain an income. They have to be able to raise their future families. They have to find suitable housing, cope with future, you know, natural disasters. We, you know, the the impacts of our decisions today 100% affect the young people of today. So we just we just need to, you know, really keep that in mind, I think. Number eight is an amazing quote, which was planners are complexity scientists. I just love that. And, you know, that was that went to the indigenous thoughts that we I shared previously. Uh, but really, this was around the high level of rigor that is required to do planning and how linear processes are really not serving us well, you know. We, we we sort of think we need to do, you know, one plus one equals two. But really, because of the, the nature of the complexity of our cities and of our places and of our people, we really need to think about how we do things differently, run projects differently. And really, it was, you know, the question was raised, are you owning this role? Are we stepping into the role of complexity scientists or are we shying away from it? And I think we all should personally reflect on that and reflect on our projects and, and of projects upcoming. How can we step into the role of complexity scientists? And, you know, it, the this follow-up question was, how are you acknowledging this growing complexity and ensuring that you're equipped to respond to the range of interconnected complexities that exist? And so, you know, it's a big one, but, uh, um, you know, ta- if you can take anything away, the key quote for me was planners are complexity scientists. How are you owning this role? All right, we're nearly there. Number nine was around organizational change. And there was a really interesting uh, conversation in the, the yarning circle, which was around organizational change fails when you focus on the individual. And so that was because that change will have a short shelf life. They, That person that you've individually focused on will have to change back to fit in with others. That That's basic survival instincts. And so in order to actually instill organizational and widespread change, you need to understand the root cause of the issue that you're trying to address and address it at the root. Don't Don't address it individual by individual because inevitably the systemic or the structural issue will will remain we won't be changed and so you know I, I thought that was a really good one just to say that no matter the effort you put in on, on one person if you're not understanding the root cause you're really not going to achieve that that organizational change or that cultural change that you're seeking all right and number 10 the last lesson for me was that in real life can never be replaced by online. So just getting together all in one room, all in one location and and meeting people face to face is can never be replaced by seeing them on a screen. Just I can't even describe you, you sort of forget, you know, you you think oh yeah, I've met this person, but you really don't have any idea, you know, 
their what how you get what feeling you get when you meet them in person and just the energy transfer that you you receive when you you meet people in real life the the sort of next bit of the 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 subtext of of this uh lesson for me though is that hybrid really is the way of the future I think we really do need to give people options because what I really enjoyed with the way that this conference was set up was that I went to most of the sessions in person, but there was one or two that I decided to take a walk or to uh, go back up to the hotel to do a couple of hours of, of emails. And so it was just such a great ability to be able to sort of go, you know, step away from the in real life and, and choose the online, but not miss out. And I think that flexibility really ensures as many people have access to the content and to the professional development and they can continue to contribute. They don't sort of feel detached or feel like they've missed out. And so, yeah, in real life definitely needs to be offered. But I think, you know, having an online alternative for people that can't make it in real life is is equally as important. Flexibility is key. So I hope you've enjoyed my, my tips and my lessons from conference and what I learned. Uh, as I said, I could have continued. There's probably at least another five on the top top of my head right now that I'd love to sort of rattle off, but I, I do want to keep it to 10. I do think that those are the 10 that really resonated with me the most, uh, but I'm really interested to hear if you attended, whether you learned anything else and, and whether you would replace any of those or add to any of those. If you didn't attend, how do you sort of feel that they sit in terms of the priorities of the profession moving forward? Uh, and yeah, anyway, until next time, I will I will leave you there. Uh, thank you for tuning in to the Hustle and Bustle podcast. If you've enjoyed the episode, please leave us a rating and a review so that others find out about the show. You can follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn too. That's all from this episode. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you next time. Bye for now.